Welcome to Off the Record, produced by WKXL, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com and available as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm very pleased to be joined this week by our guest, a real legendary radio personality, veteran of New Hampshire legislature and sports and current events analyst, and starting next week, the newest host on WKXL, Ken Kale. Ken, welcome to Off the Record. Matt, thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be with you and uh, joining uh, WKXL is a, a thrill. Uh, you know, I, I've worked with Chris Ryan uh, in the past. We did Monarchs games together, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, uh, very informative as well. So, Ken, how did you get into this? I mean, you were, you're a long time, uh, you're, you're, you really are sort of a legendary voice. I've, I've talked to a bunch of people around New Hampshire and they say, ooh, Ken Kale. Wow. That's, that's great for the station. Good get. Um, how did you get into this? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I, as, as a kid growing up, I mean, like seven, eight, nine years old in my backyard playing wiffle ball with my friends, I would always, in air quotes, announce the game, you know, do play by play of the wiffle ball games in my backyard, in my backyard. So uh, when uh, I was a little bit older than that, about 16, a friend of mine and myself went to the first ever Boston Braves American Hockey League game. Now, they at one time were the American Hockey League affiliate of the Bruins, and they played their home games at the old Boston Garden. So I was with a friend of mine. We, I always looked up into the broadcast booth, no matter what kind of a game it was. And I saw Bob Wilson, legendary hockey broadcaster, Bob Wilson. Terrific guy. He died several years ago, but uh, spent a lot of time in New Hampshire in his later years. But nonetheless, he was a, a great radio broadcaster for the Bruins and also did some of the Braves games as well. So I looked up into the booth, saw Bob up there with just the radio engineer. No color man, no statistician or anything else. So the next day, I wrote a letter to Bob Wilson. Now, I had written many of these letters in the past to other broadcasters, and either I got uh, no response or, you know, just a, a standard form letter or, or whatever it might have been, but most of the time, no response. So I wrote it on a Saturday morning, wrote a letter to Bob Wilson saying that I would love to observe what you do, uh, you know, keep stats for you, run to get your coffee, whatever it is you can think of. I'd love to do it just to, uh, you know, be around a, a radio broadcast and a legendary radio broadcaster. So that was written on a Saturday morning and I mailed it. Monday afternoon, that Monday afternoon, I was out back as usual playing wiffle ball or touch football with friends of mine. My father came to the door and yelled out that I had a phone call. And, you know, back then I didn't get very many phone calls, uh, especially from girls. But uh, I got a phone call and my father said, it's Bob Wilson on the line. Now, Bob Wilson had the absolute greatest radio voice you have ever heard in your life. I say that to this day. Uh, no one has ever talked uh, his legendary voice. So I knew if somebody was trying to pull a prank on me, uh, like if my father or mother had set somebody up to say they were Bob Wilson, they couldn't fool me because his voice was so distinct. So I picked up the phone, and lo and behold, it was the real Bob Wilson. 
He said, got your letter. Uh, the next Braves home game is Friday. Meet me at the press gate about an hour and a half before the game, and we'll see how things work out. Well, apparently they worked out because I went on to keep stats for him that year for the Braves and then uh, subsequently for the Bruins. And then one night, a couple of years later, after I'd been you know, working with Bob for a couple of years, he called me up and said there's an opening for a producer at WBZ Radio. Now, here I, I was only in one radio station taking a tour. I mean, I had never been really in a radio station environment. You know, I was keeping stats for Bob, but it was always at, at the old garden. So the program director uh, got in touch with me. He had me in for an interview. I had no radio experience whatsoever. The only media-related thing I ever did uh, was write sports for a couple of local newspapers. So he wanted to see a couple of clippings and what have you, and I brought them in. And so that was like in September of 1972. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of months. And then one day out of the blue, you know, I figured, you know, no experience. They're not going to hire me here. One day out of the blue, Bob Oaks, the program director, called me up and said, would you like to come to work for us? And I said, I'd love to. I was just starting uh, at my post high school education at a, uh, at a school called the Leland Powers School of Radio, Television and Theater. And I just started and I get a call from the program director of WBZ. So initially I was pretty much a gopher on remote broadcasts and that sort of thing. But ultimately, I worked there for about four years at WBZ and produced some talk shows with uh, Jerry Williams, Guy Manella, uh, Larry Glick. I, I produced uh, Bruins games, Celtics games, Patriots games, uh, behind the scenes. And it was just a, an amazing experience and learned more than I ever could from any you know, broadcasting school, for sure and spent uh, four great years at WBZ before uh, leaving in 1976 uh, to go to Hartford and work for a station there with uh, Jerry Williams, who uh, was let go from WBZ, asked me if I wanted to be his producer in Hartford. I said, well, let's explore that situation. And they were going to pay me more than I was making at WBZ and offered me a weekend sports talk show. So I jumped on it. So that's how I initially got started in the, in the radio business. And from there, I've worked uh, after Hartford, mostly uh, in New Hampshire. I did a syndicated show out of Boston uh, for a while, but mostly in New Hampshire. And I've done everything from, uh, you know, playing oldies on the radio to doing news to play-by-play, uh, -play, talk shows, uh, you name it. So I think I've, I've done virtually every job there is to do uh, at one time or another. Uh, in the radio business. So uh, could you maybe just share with our listeners, you've had uh, obviously tremendous experiences on the radio. What's, I'm going to make you give away the, the, the gold stuff here. What, what's maybe your best story? What, what really comes to mind is, wow, this was, this was a really memorable experience in, in all of my radio hosting days. Well, uh, nothing really comes close to it. And as a matter of fact, uh, our very own Chris Ryan was a part of it as well. It was uh, June 13th, 2015. And uh, I, I did Manchester Monarchs hockey on the radio for 17 years, 14 of them uh, in the American Hockey League, three in the ECHL. But 
uh, nearing the uh, about the midway point of the 14th season, the 2014-2015 season for the Monarchs, it was announced that the AHL franchise, known as the Manchester Monarchs, would be heading west and would become the Ontario reign of the American Hockey League as there was a westward movement in the American Hockey League and many of the affiliates were moving closer to their west coast parent clubs and some of the east coast American Hockey League teams were leaving, including the Manchester Monarchs. So final year 2014 2015 the monarchs make it to the calder cup finals the ahl equivalent of the stanley cup and in their final game as an american hockey league franchise they won the calder cup they had never won it before uh, they had never made it to the finals before but it was a, you know like a, a storybook thing and you know, it was very, very emotional because it was, we really didn't know. I didn't know if I was going to be back another year when uh, they went to the ECHL. So I didn't know at that time. And, and the Monarchs win the Calder Cup in Utica, New York, beautiful downtown Utica, New York. And uh, Chris and I doing the game. Chris went down uh, to the ice after the game to do interviews. I stayed up to, uh, to anchor the broadcast in the booth. My a daughter was there as well, and it was especially significant. She came up from Brooklyn, where she uh, lives, and uh, she came up from Brooklyn to visit me, and she had kept stats on the broadcast for a number of years when she was going to school uh, in Manchester. So she came up and uh, spent some time with me in the booth during this game in Utica. I was with her. There were so many memories, so many people uh, that I had to thank for, you know, how they helped out the broadcasts and the Monarchs over the years. And it was very emotional. And I just, uh, I just broke up. I actually cried in the postgame show. I really and truly did. And it almost chokes me up now to think about that moment again. But uh, that really was the, the, uh, the, the apex, I guess, of my uh, at least play-by-play -play broadcasting career. And, uh, it was really a thrill. I don't, I don't know if that, that could ever be uh, repeated in, in terms of, you know, the fact that it was such a storybook ending for the franchise to win their first championship in the final game that that franchise in the American Hockey League, anyway, uh, would ever play. So it was really an emotional night and uh, just a great way to finish that 14-year run. Ultimately, I did come back, as I said, and did the three years with the ECHL Monarchs, but uh, that far and away was the, uh, the uh, you know, the game uh, that I will remember the most and, and certainly uh, one of the biggest memories in my broadcast career. You know, over the course of your broadcast career, the technology of the way people experience sports and information has really changed. It's expanded. There are many more uh, mediums, media, uh, yeah. out there you know you can be assured that if you're given play-by-play -play on a monarchs game people are going to be seeing the video clips on their phone um the next day if there was something particularly exciting that happened has any of that change in the media landscape changed your approach to how you do play-by-play -play? do you do you do you envision the way your audience is experiencing the game any differently knowing that it's against this whole media backdrop 
Yeah, no, it is very true, but I always stuck uh, to my radio roots and always did a radio play-by-play call. And it's, it's funny because the final three years I did the Monarchs in the ECHL, most of the people who were listening to the game were also watching it on a program they have called ECHL Live, where they could uh, see the games as well as listen to them. And many times the uh, the play-by-play and the picture uh, uh, from people that told me it was out of sync many times, depending on what location you're doing the game from. But it wasn't always uh, technically uh, very well done, but uh, that, that wasn't my fault. So I always stuck to a radio play-by-play call just just assuming that, you know, a lot of people were accustomed to that and that, uh, you know, they would have expect that even if they were viewing the games on uh, the ECHL live app. But I, I've done a, a number of, uh, in the past, done television games, uh, some uh, collegiate games and, and high school games on television. And then I would change my call there if I knew that, you know, there wasn't any uh, radio access to it. As well, you know, it's a different thing doing doing a game on radio than it is TV. I mean, radio, you describe where the puck is or where the ball is uh, at all times and try to keep your audience on top of that. Whereas on a TV broadcast, it's pretty much putting uh, captions to the pictures. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a totally different thing. But mm. uh, so, you know, but I, so I adjusted to that if I knew it was exclusively a TV production. But uh, when there was any chance that people were not able to see the game, I, I would always do a radio call. Mm. So in the minute or so we have left, um, just give us a preview. What's your new show on KXL going to be about? What are you going to focus on? And what's going to be like? Well, of course, uh, you know, KXL's main focus, uh, and it has been for many years, is politics. So we will we will do that. But. Uh, I, I want to have a little bit of a variety as well, uh, bring on people from all you know, walks of life and have some authors on, some, some athletes, some local dignitaries. Uh, I, I want to you know, uh, make it uh, interesting for, for everyone, uh, even if they're not into politics, and uh, you know, try to bring as many people uh, on the show as I as I possibly can, that have different perspectives than mine, which is uh, which is a lot, and uh, and so it'll it'll be it'll be fun, and we'll we'll keep it uh, lively, we'll we'll keep it loose, and uh, you know have have people on from uh, from from everywhere, and uh, just just make it as as informative and uh, as as fun as we can at the same time. Well, it's off the record on WKXL. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and do some of that politics and sports that Ken was just talking about. Don't go away. (laughs) We're back. It's off the record on WKXL. And I'm Matt Robeson, joined by Ken Kale, a legendary uh, radio host and personality and uh, newest host on WKXL. So while we were away, Ken and I had a little tussle and uh, over who's going to control the mic. And of course, uh, he won. I'm not surprised. So we're going to do something fun. We're going to we're going to do a role reversal. He's going to take over the mic. He's going to lob the questions at me and we're going to do uh, we're going to do some politics. So, Ken, over to you. Uh, all right, Matt. Thank you very much. So I'll get a little practice here uh, before I take over on Monday. Uh, of course, on Tuesday of this week, uh, 
President-elect Biden uh, announced his cabinet appointments, or at least uh, to this point, his, uh, his appointments were announced on Tuesday. Uh, what was your reaction uh, to the nominees? Yeah, you know, it struck me that this is a real governing focus. Um, you know, you see a slate of pretty experienced people who've been around the block a few times. And it makes sense given Joe Biden's long experience with presidential administrations and in government in general. I mean, historically, and you could study this, administrations get the most done in the first 18 months. After that, after that big window, everyone's positioning themselves politically for the midterms. Um, and there, so there's a, a ticking clock happening. And, you know, we've seen a lot of deep reporting on the fact that, you know, if you're a Democrat, um, you would view it as there's a lot of cleanup to do in these uh, executive branch agencies. So there's no time for on the job training. Um, so, you know, I, I think what you see here is uh, a really strong governing focus, um, people who are gonna be able to jump right in uh, and start executing within these agencies immediately. And then of course there's a political dimension as well. I mean, you see gender diversity, racial diversity, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield at the UN, Avril Haines, at, uh, 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 Director of uh, National Intelligence, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas at Homeland, uh, et cetera. The other thing I'll just point out is you're seeing some ideological diversity. I mean, there's been a lot made of some of the split emerging in the Democratic Party between the left and the center. Uh, and you see in these picks, people who can bridge some of those divides. Janet Yellen, who is uh, who's, who's someone who has a lot of credibility on Wall Street, but also a lot of street cred with liberals on the left. Ditto for John Kerry as the climate czar. He negotiated the Paris Climate Accord, um, but he's also um, not seen as a wild-eyed leftist either. Um, so you're seeing them kind of position it uh, down the middle that way. Of course, you know, the media, most of the media anyway, uh, was gushing with the, the picks uh, that, that, well, I guess he made. Uh, but others are calling it the Obama administration 2.0. Yeah, I, I mean, no doubt you're seeing some retreads, right? Like, you know, the Jake Sullivan's and Tony Blinken's of the world um, who are going to be taking over a lot of the mantle at state um, and uh, as uh, national security advisor, um, you know, and so <laughs> this is this is one of those uh, ideological fault lines. Uh, and I think Democrats have to be kind of careful here to recognize that what they see as you know, straight down the line, uh, kind of center-leaning picks who should be acceptable um, in a likely Republican Senate may not be viewed quite the same way. And it, by Republicans, we're going to have to we're going to have to see what the reaction is uh, in a Mitch McConnell Republican-led Senate if that's indeed how it plays out. Um, I do think that there were some early signals from Republicans that the slate we've seen so far is going to be acceptable to them. They're, 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 not, they're not signaling that there's anyone who's sort of beyond the pale to them politically. Um, but you're right that there's a little bit of a wait and see there. Yeah, absolutely. And we, have, we will have to wait and see how it goes. I mean, obviously, we have two Senate races uh, in the balance uh, in the state of Georgia. And, uh, you know, the money being spent in Georgia right now is just incredible. I mean, it, you know, it's over the top. Uh, it's good. The, now, how did it, for those who, who may not know, Matt, and, and you know, we're all not, uh, you know, political, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd consider myself a political junkie. I know enough to get by. But how, how was it in the first place that this, these two Senate races in Georgia would be decided in January? 
Yeah, so the, Georgia's got a kind of, uh, well, it's not unique. It's not totally unique, <laughs> but they have an unusual system where they run what's called a jungle primary. No idea where that comes from. Um, and if you don't get a straight majority, which, you know, if you've got third party candidates and the like, um, and you have a very tightly contested race, um, can happen more often than not, you get one of these runoff situations. And the fact that you've got two is due to the fact that uh, uh, one of the uh, incumbents um, was fulfilling a, a, the remainder of a term uh, mm -hmm. that was up. And so um, you end up with this very, very unusual situation um, where you have two Senate races in the same state going to overtime. Now, reportedly, thousands of people are going to be moving to Georgia. <laughs> wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Attempt to sway this this election. I, I mean, is that? I mean, you know, I don't know if it's happened yet, but that's that's the rumor. I mean, uh, what do you think about that? You know, I think it's become. I think it's a darn shame. It's become really hard in the last few weeks for people to know what information they can rely on, right? I mean, there's been a lot of stuff thrown out. And look, if you're a Republican, you are bound to pay some attention and lend some credence to some of the stuff you're hearing in these post-election lawsuits uh, from the Trump campaign. And it doesn't matter how much they get slapped back by federal judges, including uh, uh, Republican and conservative judges in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, um, there's just a lot out in the ether. And so I think it's lent a real uh, level of distrust, even higher than we saw uh, going into the election. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't seen evidence per se that there are uh, scads of people moving to Georgia to try and sway the result. I'm also not aware, and it would be worth looking up, uh, what are the uh, registration requirements? How much of a pre-election window do you get uh, in order to qualify to vote in the runoff election. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I certainly think that we've gotten to a point where the rumors are flying and a lot of people are gonna, gonna believe them uh, no matter what else is out there. I don't know, I mean, it's, it, have you been hearing a lot of that? You, you probably move uh, in slightly better conservative media circles than I do. Is that, is that what's on the street? That's what they're saying, that a lot of people uh, in particular from uh, California are planning to move to Georgia. Now, I don't know if any of that migration has taken place yet or not, but that's that's just uh, whether it's just sheer speculation. But that's that's the thought that's uh, that's going to happen, that there's going to be an influx of people uh, moving to, to Georgia to attempt to sway the outcome of this election. You know, yeah, I think it, it really does get back to the fact that we don't have uh, <laughs> we don't have a good central set of facts to work from anymore in this country, uh, which is which is tough, you know. And I also I'm I'm a bit of a contrarian with my party about this, but I think there is a bit of a silver lining for Democrats here. Um, boy, no one's going to agree with me on on the left about this, but I think there's a silver lining for Democrats here uh, if it does turn out that they don't prevail in these two Senate races. You know, I, I was alluding before to the, the awful high uh, amount of pressure that's on Democrats uh, from the left uh, and some of the fractures that have already started to appear in the party uh, between left and center. It's not necessarily a bad thing for Democrats 
to have to restrain some of their expectations and maybe just maybe um, cut a deal with Mitch McConnell and a Republican led Senate on some hot button issues. And I would just submit that one of them where there might be some room for a negotiation is around uh, voting reform, uh, election law. Um, I think that there is a little bit of cleanup that we could do here that might repair some of the damage of all of this mistrust that's been sown in the last few weeks. And there certainly has been that uh, from both sides, really. So, so Matt, let's just assume, let's, let's assume away here that we, we know the House is going to be controlled by the Democratic Party. Uh, the, let's, let's say the Senate is controlled by Republicans. How difficult is it going to be to get anything done uh, under that scenario? You know, I think the short answer is probably pretty hard. Um, but, you know, not to sound like Bill Clinton splitting hairs with definitions here, but maybe it depends a little bit by, by what one means by, by anything. Um, you know, I, look, I think that the Republicans in the Senate are going to be politically incentivized to oppose everything, right? From everything from the Biden administration, everything from the House. I'm not casting blame on, on them for this. I'm just saying that that is the political incentive. And we've seen this playbook before in 2009. It worked out pretty darn well for them in the 2010 midterm elections. For the House, uh, you know, some some commentators have made a, a deal, the fact that it's a very small Democratic margin. I'll tell you a dirty little secret um, after, you know, 10 years working in the House. Um, that doesn't really matter. A, a small majority is enough. I think the one silver lining from Democrats' standpoint, if you're really interested in getting things done that align with the Democratic agenda, the, the Joe Biden program, is that nowadays there's so much of a logjam uh, in the legislative branch uh, between the House and Senate, between the Congress and, and the administration. 95% of everything gets done gets done in the executive agencies. And that goes back to the first question uh, about the cabinet. That's why there's such a premium on these cabinet appointments uh, in trying to get people who are experienced, who can come right into the agencies, wake up in the morning, know what time it is, uh, and start to get things done, because there's a very limited window. And that's probably where the action is. So yeah, big picture question is, I wouldn't expect gigantic legislation. Um, but you know, if, if Democrats can content themselves with hitting some bunts and sing singles, um, and getting stuff done in the agencies, uh, there's a lot they can get done. Having worked in the House as, as you did, uh, were you surprised that the Republicans were able to flip as many seats as they did this time around? Uh, I was surprised just because I drank the same media brew that everyone else did. Um, and it certainly looked from the polling uh, and you know the opinions of, of analysts who I trust, like Charlie Cook, who identified 27 toss-up races for the House. So... Would, do you do you happen to know off the top of your head what Democrats' batting average was in those twenty-seven toss-up races? Oh, for twenty-seven. Bing. Oh, yes, exactly. Um, you know, so yes, I, I was a little surprised about that. I would have thought that you know, just the law of averages. If you're flipping a coin twenty-seven yep. times and you're fifty-fifty, you you would have netted a little bit better. Um, but look, you know, stepping back. Um, again, I, I think this is the kind of thing that I, as a Democrat, am disappointed about, but maybe we need to be a little bit more uh, long-term focused and a little bit more zen about this. 
I'm not sure that it's altogether in a long-term sense bad for the Democratic Party. I think they have to take a hard look in the mirror and ask themselves, why is it that the country would prefer Joe Biden over Donald Trump by 4%? Um, you know, it's like something like 80 million to, to 73 million at this point. Um, but at the same time, send back a Republican Senate, a Republican House. And I mean, look in New Hampshire, where, you know, Shaheen was reelected, the state voted for Joe Biden, but uh, it was a total wipeout in the governorship and uh, in the legislative seats. So uh, that's, that's a, a self-examination that I think could be very healthy for the Democratic Party. So getting back to uh, voter, voter, reg voter uh, legislation, uh, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about what President Trump has done and contesting uh, the races. But in the long run, uh, as you said, there has to be some election reform. And, and maybe as a result of these challenges, something uh, will come about. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, look, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, you could say, it's not good, right? Like 83% in, in, in a recent, there's a public affairs firm called Seven Letter that just did a poll. I know we're not trusting polls that much these days, but 83% of Trump voters believe that the media is the enemy of the people. 56% of Trump voters don't believe their vote was recorded accurately. So that's not good in a democracy, right? I mean, I, I, I think we can all agree about that one. Um, but, but if it creates the conditions where both parties say, look, we can't have this. We've got to reach maybe a painful compromise, a painful accommodation. That wouldn't be the end of the world um, long-term for American democracy. And by the way, I'll just point out that uh, we've got to take a break. Um, oh. and, and time really flew uh, with you in control of the mic. It was so, it was so much fun that I'm going to suggest we do that again, but let's shift focus to sports when we come back. Sound good? Something I know a little bit, a little bit about. A oh, little you, you, you know a lot uh, about sports and politics. All right, I'm Matt Robeson. That's Ken Kale. This is off the record on WKXL. We'll be right back. We're back. I'm Matt Robeson. This is off the record on WKXL. Joined by the uh, fabulous and legendary Ken Kale. Uh, we, before the break, we're just doing a rundown of some politics after Ken wrested the control of the microphone from me. Um, and good thing he did because uh, he's a pretty darn good host. Um, so we're going to keep that rolling. But now just for fun, I know we mostly do politics on this show, but I can't help myself. Um, I, I am up for talking about some Celtics if you're up for talking about some Celtics. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've been a Celtics fan. I hate to age myself but uh since 1963 that's when i went to my first game at the old boston garden and bob Cousy was still playing tommy heinsohn bill russell i mean i'm just so grateful that i did grow up in that era and uh and 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 still today, I, I remain uh, a Celtics fan. Let me let me let me lob a question at you since since you were there. Um, and look, I know we all look back at, at the past with some rose colored glasses, but oh yeah, you know I think there's a perception that the athletes of the '60s and '70s couldn't hold up against the athletes of today. And sure, it's true they probably didn't train the same way, and they were all smoking at halftime. But <laughs> in terms of baseline athletic prowess, who from that era? do you think would, would hold up just fine in the game of today? 
Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that, that Bill Russell would still be a very, very dominant player. Uh, I think, uh, you know, John Havlicek, uh, I feel the same way about him. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm not so sure. I, I think uh, I think Bob Cousy, I mean, uh, he was just, you know, they called him the Houdini of the hardwood, and he was, uh, he certainly was. I, I think uh, I think he would as well. And I, I mean, there were a lot of players in that era uh, or close to that era, Elgin Baylor, uh, you know, comes to mind, uh, Will Chamberlain. I mean, I think all of those guys and, and, and more would, uh, would uh, hold up in, in today's NBA. Mm. So speaking of throwbacks, now you see what I did here is I'm kind of, I'm grabbing control back. I can't help myself. All right, I'm gonna, I have thoughts too. I have thoughts on this question too, but I'm going to lob it at you. So speaking of throwback players, the Celtics just lost Gordon Hayward, right? Yep. And, uh, they, they, at least in his salary slot, have taken interest in Thompson. These are two players who are kind of throwback players, right? In terms of their game, their style. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think about all this? And I, I, I like I said, I have many thoughts, but what, what, what was your take on all this? Well, I, I'm not disappointed to see Gordon Hayward go elsewhere. We never really saw, as Celtics fans, we never really saw the, you know, Gordon Hayward uh, who is so good. Uh, prior to coming to the Celtics. I mean, such a great player. And, you know, at the time when the Celtics acquired him, you know, he was supposed to be the guy at that point. He, he was it. And then first game in, in Cleveland, uh, he's gone for the next year and a half. And, you know, we, we were kind of gypped, I think, as Celtics fans, because we really didn't see uh, Gordon Hayward. And, and uh, now he, he's off to Charlotte, which certainly surprised a lot of people as well. But I think what the Celtics have done uh, in an effort to uh, replace him, in a sense, uh, has been positive. I know Danny Ainge was taking uh, a lot of heat uh, in the immediate aftermath of Hayward's departure to Charlotte. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think what he's done with Tristan Thompson and with uh, Jeff Teague uh, is uh, a, a positive step. I, I really do. And if uh, Aaron Naismith, uh, their number one pick out of, of Vanderbilt can, uh, you know, shoot the threes and uh, play a little bit on the inside as well. Uh, I think uh, I think they've they've done okay for themselves. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I put myself in the camp of Danny Ainge has earned. He's earned a lot of leeway here, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, going back yep. a dozen years to the maneuvers that that brought us, you know, the big three. Yep. Um, and even over the last, now that doesn't mean that he hasn't made some missteps, right? I mean, this is the same guy who offered four first round picks for justice Winslow. Uh, and thank goodness that little maneuver didn't work out, but he's earned the benefit of the doubt. Uh, my question really is, you know, you lose, you lose Gordon Hayward and what does he get you? And, and what of that can you replace? Well, you can replace some of that ability to get your own shot in the mid range, right? Uh, Tatum gives you that Brown gives you that Kemba. Uh, is one of the best in the NBA at that. Yep. You have other switchable defenders, right? You've you've got you've got obviously Tatum and Brown. You've got Marcus, um, you know, and I, I mean even even Tice can give you a little bit of that. What I think you lose, what I don't think is quite so easy to replace, is the playmaking, the the assists, the four or five assists a game that he gave you, and the hockey assists where he's sort of the stick that stirs the drink, gets the offense going, um, you know, in Brad Stevens' system. I'm a little bit worried about the playmaking because what you saw in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Heat was that the offense could get a little bit stagnant. They could stop the point of attack with bigger defenders on Kemba 
And then things got a little stagnant. And, you know, obviously Gordon was, was injured for part of that series. Um, but that's what they were waiting for to get back was that kind of playmaking uh, acceleration of the offense. I, I worry a little bit about losing that. Yeah, no, I can understand. Uh, that's uh, certainly understandable. But uh, I think between uh, Kemba and, and Teague, I, I, think, uh, I think they've done pretty well. I, you know, I, I, I want to get your thoughts as, as a Celtics fan. I want to get your thoughts on uh, Marcus Smart. He is uh, not just my favorite player, but, you know, my daughter, who's nine, um, Uh just started this season watching every game, every playoff game with me. And Marcus is her favorite player. And I asked her why. And she said, it's because he's just so smart. Now, look, I could do without some of the um, (laughs) searching to get on a hot streak that he sometimes engages in. It's not necessarily a good sign for the Celtics offense if uh, Marcus is your leading scorer. Uh, if you're sort of depending on him to get hot, which he can do. Um, but I mean, look, he's only a three, uh, 36% three point shooter. Right. So, um, but that aside, uh, he is just such an intelligent team defender. He will make at least one play per game, more like two or three where it's not going to show up on the stat sheet, but it is the thing that changes the momentum. Anyone who's played, Um, not just basketball, but other sports knows what I'm talking about. That kind of feeling in the team that you're going to win, that you've got this. Uh, He provides that. And uh, no, I'm very happy that they're, they're holding on to him. You, you agree? You know, I think, well, I, you know, I, I I have the same feelings about some of the flaws in his game that that you do, but I think that he is really an underrated uh, facilitator. I really do. I I really and truly do. I, I think he's an excellent playmaker. Uh, and uh, underrated in that category, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, you could see a little bit of that uh, in the playoffs. He he brought a little bit of spark. Um, he was able to penetrate. He, he has some sneaky bounce and wraparound passes. Um, he's pretty good um, at looking one pass ahead, uh, finding the rotation of the ball. Um, but you know, look, I mean, he's, I, I, again, I think like you were saying as well, he's not the guy you want creating off dribble penetration. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy you want, uh, there shoots a, a totally decent percentage from three, um, sort of an auxiliary, uh, playmaker. Um, but I, you know, I worry about the cohesion of the team, you know, and frankly, I, I was a little surprised seeing some of the other moves that the teams made. Um, you know, here's a guy who's a Celtics vet who we could have had back um, and is a pretty darn good passer and playmaker. I, I wouldn't have minded seeing Aaron Baines come back, um, yep. you know, and, and he was out there for a pretty reasonable price. They decided they'd prefer to go with Thompson. Would you have preferred uh, Aaron Baines over Tristan Thompson? Uh, I, I guess my question is what happens to Robert Williams in all this? I guess with either of them, right? You know what? I, I mean, that's a, for the Celtics to take the next step, um, Williams has got to take the next step too. Um, now, in, you know, in today's NBA, you're, you're, not, you're not tilting everything on the strength of your center. Uh, certainly not the way you did 20 and 30 years ago. Right. Um, but you could see, you could see in some of the playoff series that when Williams is on and when they get him rolling strong to the basket, he can provide you that offensive rebounding that they're now losing with Ennis Cantor. He can provide you that rim running threat uh, that really opens up the perimeter. 
Um, so, you know, as a shooter from outside, um, you know, for the way Brad Stevens likes the team to play. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have minded having Baines back. Uh, you know, he's, he's quite a competent three point shooter for his size. Um, you know, and Thompson, I think, you know, NBA folks are a little mixed on, on where he is at this point in his career and how much he has left to, left to give you. You know, and, and Daniel Tice, uh, I mean, here's a guy that's uh, really stepped up his game over the past couple of seasons as well. Oh, I was so impressed with him. I was so impressed with him in the playoffs. I mean, look, one thing that he can't give you that maybe Tristan does um, is, I mean, he was, get, Bam Adebayo was beating the tar out of him. Um, what, what's the, what's the German? He was beating the schnitzel out of him. Um, <laughs> you know, and so I, I, I do think that there's a little bit of a problem there against uh, some of the heftier uh, centers that you're, you're going to come up against. Certainly, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Miami again. Um, and now Philly has uh, reloaded uh, with Dwight Howard uh, behind Joel Embiid. So I don't think you can get it all done with Tice, but boy, I mean, you know, a guy who uh, is a heady player, he's pretty switchable uh, for his size um, and is not afraid of uh, launching it from three and shoots a decent percentage. Uh, I was, I was really pretty happy with, with, with what we got. Now here's the big question. Is Danny Ainge done? Is it finished or will there be another piece to come along into the mix? Well, I'm going to boomerang this back to you in a second, but I'll give you my thoughts. I mean, look, I look around the East and I'm the contenders. I mean, the contenders and Miami, they're probably pretty much the same, right. As they were last year, the bucks uh, with holiday, maybe they're a touch better. The nets. I mean, they're a lot better, right. Cause, yeah. cause you're getting two all-stars and, and maybe an all-time uh, player back. Um, of course, we don't know what's going to happen on Harden and, and on Tentacupo, but you know what, Toronto, um, they lose Ibaka, but uh, they, they get Baines, uh, you know, which is not a bad replacement. They keep their core, you know, and then Philly. I mean, adding Seth Curry, literally the best percentage three-point shooter in the league. Danny Green, uh, who's still a very solid defender and a good shooter, uh, and losing Al Horford, which at this point, I love Al, but that's probably addition by subtraction. It looks to me like the Celtics today are a little bit worse. Their main competition in the East is either the same or getting better. So I would think that Ainge would have to do something, but it could be wrong. What do you think? Uh, well, what about Paul George? What are your thoughts on, on Paul George, perhaps? You think he's available? Yeah. Uh, so what, what would you have to do to get him? Mm, boy, you'd probably have to do something that the Celtics don't want to do. I mean, you, you know... <laughs> Could you get him for like a for like a package of of Jalen and 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 smart? I mean, I assume that at this point Tatum is untouchable, right? Um, but to make the money match, uh, yeah. I, that that would be the tricky part. Yeah, maybe you could get it done um, for a Brown and Smart combo, but I'm not sure you're better off at this point, especially given how shaky he he. I mean, we just saw, you know, how how not himself he looked uh barely a few months ago so um you know you you wouldn't want to say no to to an incredible player like that but uh i don't know i'm 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 happy with the core i'm happy with the celtics core but yeah. I, they need they need something they to me let me ask you this do you think this celtics team today 
head to head with the upgraded Philly, the new Nets, um, you know, and uh, and the Bucks who have reloaded with Holiday. Do you favor them in any of those seven round series today? I would have to say probably not, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I I, I think you know Philly is is much improved uh, just sim- simply by the fact that Doc Rivers is coaching them now. I I really do. I think that's going to be a tremendous uh, boost for them. Uh, and uh, the other teams that you mentioned, Miami, we know what they're capable of now. And uh, Brooklyn with the additions they've made. No, I, I really don't. I think another piece is needed. I really and truly do. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like, you know, the, the only other possibility is maybe Romeo Langford takes a leap in his second mm-hmm. year, maybe yeah. Carson Edwards begins to give you something, or maybe, you know, uh, Aaron Neesmith or Pey- Peyton Pritchard um, comes in stronger as a rookie than, than is traditionally the case. Um, well, look, I would love to keep talking Celtics and maybe we should do that off the air, but we are running out of time. Um, Ken Kale, thank you so much for being our guest. Really looking forward to your show uh, starting next week. You're, you're, you're going, you're going live Monday, right? 10 o'clock Monday morning. Really looking forward to it. Uh, Ken Kale, everyone, uh, absolute legend uh, in broadcasting uh, in New England and looking forward to having him on WKXL. This is Off the Record. I'm Matt Robeson. Looking forward to talking to you next week and to listening to Ken on WKXL. Take care.